before we begin, I just want to tell you how excited I am about this week. Not only do we have our Thanksgiving dinner on Tuesday night for the first time uh, in our own building in the Beacon. We've been looking forward to that for a number of years, and so I hope that uh, you'll plan to be there if you've not yet made reservations. I don't know if there's any space left or not, but you're welcome to call the church office. But then next Sunday, don't forget, next Sunday is when we will all be coming together in the sanctuary for uh, a combined worship time. We have six people that are being baptized. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper together as one community. And then afterwards, we'll all go out to the beacon for lunch, a big uh, potluck. So bring whatever. The only thing the church is providing are the, the paper goods and the drinks. Everything else is up to us. Good old-fashioned family potluck after the worship service. Uh, time for fellowship and just enjoying being together as one big church family. That's next Sunday. We're looking forward to that. Well, now if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Genesis chapter 23. I want us to look at the passage that was read just a few moments ago. We're at a spot now, we're almost finished with our series in uh, this part of Genesis. We're going to get to chapter 25 next week, and uh, after that, uh, we will come back and finish Genesis in a few months. We're going to take a break from Genesis and go to Matthew and be looking at uh, part of the gospel of Matthew during the Christmas season and then on to the winter. Looking forward to that, and from there, we journey to Acts. So, got several things ahead of us in the, in the months ahead. This morning in Bible study, we looked at Genesis chapter 22, another one of those watershed chapters in the book of Genesis, Ab Abraham's uh, sacrifice of Isaac, or potential sacrifice. God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son whom he loves, and uh, sacrifice him to God. And a test of his faith, a test of his trust in what God could do, a wonderful passage. And if you were not able to be in Bible study this morning, make sure that you take some time and read that chapter. But then now we come in this hour to chapter 23. We have a family in our church, a couple, that um, is the latest uh, series of couples that's getting ready to celebrate a very important milestone in their married life, Val and Janice Pritchett. In just a week or so, we're going to be celebrating their golden wedding anniversary. Fifty years of marriage. And that is amazing. It, it's amazing any time, but especially in today's world. It's amazing that a couple stays together for 50 years and raises a family and watches children and grandchildren come along. And I have a feeling if I were to step aside and let uh, Val and Janice come up here and take the microphone, they could tell you some stories about those 50 years and the times they've spent together, the wonderful years they've had, the wonderful experiences they've had, and also probably some difficult years, some trials they've gone through, some difficulties. And um, that's true with any couple when you spend a few decades together. You have good years, you have bad years, you have difficult times, times of joy, times of sorrow, times of gain, and times of loss. Well, today we come to one of those moments in the life of Abraham. As we read a few minutes ago, we come to the point where, as it says in verse 1 of chapter 23, now Sarah lived 127 years. These were all the years of her life. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. 127 years. And while we're not certain, we calculate that probably they were married for at least a hundred years. A hundred years of life together. And we know for a fact that it was exactly 62 years since they had left Ur of the Chaldees and started this journey together. 
I think if you want to know the definition of two people who were soulmates, Abraham and Sarah were that example. For 62 years, they had walked trusting God, taken that trip from Ur all the way to Canaan, walked together. Sarah had been by Abraham's side for every one of those joyous moments of life, those repeated promises that God was going to give them and their offspring, the entire land in which they lived, watching as Abraham gathered together his troops to fight and rescue their nephew Lot from his oppressors. They watched as they entertained the guests, uh, the angels, and maybe Jesus himself. We don't really know, but uh, and, and talked with them and prayed and begged for the life of the people of Sodom. Well, Sarah was also there through some of the difficult times, through some of Abraham's weak moments, like when he cajoled her at least twice, twice that we know of in Scripture, to lie and say that she was his sister and instead of his wife. And she also had her weak moments. Trying to substitute Hagar for herself and the jealousy that occurred over that. But you know, in and through all of that, good times, bad times, times of faith and times of doubt, Sarah was still the mother of laughter when she gave birth to the son of promise. And she was revered and is revered for her faith. In Isaiah chapter 51, there's a passage where Isaiah, it says, look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you. And the writer of Hebrews mentions Sarah in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, for her faith, her trust in God, believing that God could give her offspring and keep his promise to her. Sarah was a woman of great faith. And when she and Abraham together heard God's command to take Isaac up to the top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there, they learned together that God truly is the God who provides. And then in those post-Moriah years, as they watched their son Isaac grow up to be a grown man, their faith grew. Their belief that God would, in fact, keep his promise made strong in their lives. But here she is now, 127 years old, and she dies, leaving a husband at age 137 and a 37-year-old son, still without a wife, without a child. And Abraham mourns for her. This is not some perfunctory ritual he goes through. He, his heart is broken. The, the bride of his youth, the woman who has walked with him probably for a century, has now left, not seeing the fulfillment of the promise. You realize she was the first one of a whole line of people that the writer of Hebrews says died not seeing the promises of faith fulfilled. But she wouldn't be the last. And Abraham sits down in the dust. His wife probably laid out on a cloth or a mat and he weeps for her, and he mourns over her. You know, the writer of Ecclesiastes makes an interesting comment. In Ecclesiastes 7, 2, he says, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. 
You know, it's interesting. There's something about funerals and mourning that makes us think realistically about life. Makes us think about who we are and where we've been and where we're going. And I think the same thing was true of Abraham. He sits there, dust on his head, this old, old man mourning and grieving over the wife of his youth. And he asks himself, what do I do now? He was not a native of Canaan. He was a sojourner. He was a nomad. Would he take the body of his wife and go back and bury her in Ur with her parents and her family members with Abraham's father who was buried back there in their home place? Would he go back and take her there to bury her with her ancestors? That was the place of honor. Would he do like his grandson Jacob will do in a couple of generations when his beloved wife Rachel dies and find a beautiful tree and there by the base of the tree dig a grave and bury his beloved wife there and cover her over with dirt and then maybe with a pile of rocks and then move on, nomadic, hurting, moving people. What was Abraham going to do? As the tears poured off of his face, he thought about all that God had promised. Abraham made a remarkable decision. A decision that would have impact for centuries to come. In verse 3 of this chapter, we read these words. Then Abraham got up from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. I am a foreign resident among you. Give me a burial site among you so that I can bury my dead. I don't know if you recognize how powerful that decision was. Abraham went to the residents of the land knowing that he was an alien, a non-resident, a nomad. He owned nothing, nothing in that land. And yet he asked to be given a piece of land that he would buy and pay full price for. He wanted to own a piece of this promised land. And in doing that, he affirmed his trust that God's promise would not fail. He didn't run back to Ur the Chaldees. He didn't say, you know, I've been here 62 years and I am tired. I am going home. No, instead, he planted his feet and his life even deeper because he knew that not only would Sarah now not be able to see the completion of the promise, but that he would not either. But he wanted his body, just like his wife's body, to be buried right there, right there in Hebron, right in the middle of the land of Canaan. And so he goes to the Hittites and says, I'd like to buy a piece of land, please. And listen to what they said to him. In verse 5, the Hittites replied to Abraham, Listen to us, Lord. You are God's chosen one among us. Bury your dead in our finest burial place. None of us will, will withhold from you his burial place for burying your dead. Nice words, but pretty disingenuous. <laughs> they had no intention of giving Abraham anything for free. 
And yet, to be honest, in those words, there is great respect. You notice they call him God's chosen one among us, or a prince of God, some translations say. The word is Elohim, the word for God in the Old Testament, a prince of God. They recognized that there was something in Abraham that was different. There was a respect. Even though he was a foreigner, even though he was not one of them, they saw something in him. And beloved, if I can stop just for a second and say, I think this has a profound significance. Because it shows us, God reveals to us through this passage and through this phrase that it is not the one that owns the land that has the promise, but the one that is traveling through. And I think about our lives, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but how much of this land do we claim as our own, and how much do we see ourselves as foreigners and as travelers in this world? But be that as it may, they were not nearly as generous as they wanted to sound. So Abraham responds in verse 6, excuse me, verse 7, and says, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites. That's the only place in the entire story where Abraham ever bows down to another human. It's the only place in all the book of Genesis. He bows down to the Hittites, the people of the land, and said to them, If you are willing for me to bury my dead, listen to me, and ask Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, to give me the cave of Machpelah that belongs to him, it is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me in your presence for the full price as a burial place. As a burial place. Now you notice that Ephron was there, verse 10, that he was sitting among the Hittites. So in the presence of all the Hittites who came to the gate of his city, Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham, No, my lord. Listen to me. I will give you the field. I give it you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Now, that sounds wonderfully gracious. But there's something you have to understand about the ancient world, and in many ways, even certain parts of the world today. A person could give a piece of land free of charge to another person as long as they were alive. But as soon as they died, the children of that person could go back and reclaim the land because there was nothing given in exchange for it. It was a loan. Oh, yes, Ephron said, I will give it to you. But it wasn't forever. It was only for his lifetime. I think it's interesting, too, that Ephron, it says, was sitting in the gates of his city. Ephron was a very powerful man, a man of great influence. And all the Hittites that had come to hear Abraham's request were standing there listening, and they were just watching this exchange go back and forth. I don't like to flout the fact that we of our years in Africa or anything, but it's interesting because this kind of practice will still go on. You'll go into the market and you'll see a very nice carved uh, piece of wood or something made out of metal. You go, oh, that is beautiful. That is wonderful. I would, I would love to have something like that. And before they can even begin to give you a price, they'll put it in your hands. They'll hand it and say, here, here, this is yours now. Now, all I ask is that you give me a little bit of something in exchange for it. And then the dickering starts. Oh, and the people will start to gather around and watch as this transaction plays. And this is exactly what's happening in this story. Ephron is looking to take advantage of Abraham, the old, senile, mourning husband. But how does Abraham respond? Verse 12, Abraham bowed down to the people of the land and said to Ephron in the presence of the people, 
of the land. Please listen to me. Let me pay the price of the field. Accept it from me and let me bury my dead there. Abraham says, I don't want a loan. I want to buy the field. I want to buy the cave so that I can bury my dead. And Ephron answered Abraham in such an amazingly typical way. Lord, listen to me. Land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Go and bury your dead. Now, you've got to know, 400 shekels of silver was extortion money. Later on in Jeremiah, you'll find Jeremiah buys an entire field for 13 shekels of silver. So 400 shekels of silver. And by the way, back in those days, a shekel was a measure of weight. It was not a coin. Coins had not really been developed for another couple of hundred years from this point. So it had to be weighed out. It was over six pounds of silver. So I'm sure that Ephraim was thinking, okay, now he'll come back with a counteroffer, and we'll begin to dicker, and we'll come up with a price. But he says it in such an ingratiating way, oh, what is that between the two of us? It's only worth 400 shekels of silver. <laughs> now, if I had been Abraham, I would have said, what is that between you and me? I'll tell you what that is between you and me. You are trying to rob me blind, but not Abraham. Ephron thinks, oh, he'll, he'll give me a counteroffer here. Look what Abraham does. Abraham agreed with Ephron. Abraham weighed out to Ephron the silver that he had agreed to in the presence of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver at the current commercial rate. And Ephron was one surprised and extremely happy Hittite. <laughs> he had gotten an amazing price for his field. And Abraham got a whole lot more than he originally asked for. All he asked for was the cave. All he wanted was a place where he could place Sarah's body, put something to cover over the mouth of the cave, and know that that place belonged to him. But if you keep reading, it says, Ephron's field at Machpelah near Mamre, the field with its cave and all the trees, anywhere within the boundaries of the field became Abraham's possession in the presence of all the Hittites who came to the gate of his city. So Abraham got a lot of things in that deal. He went to the gate of the city so it would be official. Remember we talked before about that's where all of the legal things took place, was there in the gate of the city. He had witnesses who heard everything that was said. He had the silver weighed out so it would be exactly the amount it ought to be. He now owned a piece of the land that God was eventually going to give to his offspring. And he finally had a place to lay his sweet, beloved wife so that she could rest. And one day he would be placed there as well. And so we find in verse 17, Ephron's field becomes his. In verse 19, after this, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field at Machpelah near Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field with his cave passed from the Hittites to Abraham as a burial place. I cannot overemphasize the value of what has just happened in this transaction. Take just a minute, if you will, in your Bible and turn back just a few chapters to chapter 12. Chapter 12 of Genesis, and we're going to just quickly flip through several things. Abraham lived in the faith of the promises of God. In verse 7 of chapter 12, it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I will give this land to your offspring. And then down in the next chapter, in chapter 13, verse 15, 
It says, I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. Go down two verses to verse 17. Get up, walk around the land through its length and its width, for I will give it to you. Then over in chapter 15, verse 18, he says, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates River. And then in chapter 17, verse 8, he says, to you and to your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as an eternal possession. And Abraham said, I believe that what God said is true, so much so that I'm going to buy a cave right here in the middle of Canaan to bury my wife. I found in one of the books I was reading and studying for today's message a list of all of the steps of faith that went into this one act. Let me just read them for you. By faith, Abraham believed God's promise that his descendants would inherit the land. By faith, Abraham sojourned in the land for almost a century, living as one to whom it would belong. By faith, Abraham purchased the cave in Hebron. By faith, Abraham buried Sarah in the cave. By faith, Isaac buried Abraham with Sarah at Hebron. By faith, Jacob buried his father Isaac at Hebron. By faith, while in Egypt, Jacob charged his sons to bury him in Hebron. By faith, Jacob's son had him embalmed and took his body back to Hebron for burial. By faith, as the very last lines in the Genesis record, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And by faith, Moses, 430 years later at the Exodus, took Joseph's bones up out of Egypt, and for 40 years bore his mummified remains throughout all of Israel's wanderings, and then... By faith, when Joshua conquered the promised land, he buried Joseph's body in fulfillment of the same principle in a plot of land earlier purchased by his father Jacob. It's interesting that when the 12 spies went into Canaan, you remember before the 40 years of wandering, two of the spies, when they went in and walked past Hebron, came back and said, we can take that land. You remember who those two were? Joshua and Caleb. Well, they lost the vote at that business meeting that night. And the people voted not to go in. And for 40 years, they wandered. And then finally, they began, under Joshua's leadership, they crossed the Jordan, they went in. And in the book of Joshua, if you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. In the book of Joshua, chapter 14, we have the record of what happens with Caleb. Because Caleb was still living. He was 85 years old. It had been 45 years since that day when he had said, we can take this land. And he had seen Hebron. And he remembered the story about his ancestors being buried there. And he remembered God's promise. And he said, we can take that land. And in verse 6 of chapter 14, here's what it says. The descendants of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, you know what the Lord promised Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the Lord's servant, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to scout the land, and I brought back an honest report. My brothers who went with me caused the people's hearts to melt with fear, but I remained loyal to the Lord my God. On that day, Moses promised me, the land where you have set foot will be an inheritance for you and your descendants forever because you have remained loyal to the Lord my God. As you see, the Lord has kept me alive these 45 years as he promised since, he spoke, since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel was journeying in the wilderness. Here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong as I was the day Moses sent me out. My strength for battle and for daily tasks is now as it was then. 
now. Give me this hill country the Lord promised me on that day. Because you heard then that the Anakim are there as well as large fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord promised. Now listen to this next verse, verse 13. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron belongs to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, as an inheritance to this day because he remained loyal to the Lord, the God of Israel. Oh, beloved. Don't you understand? Even when Abraham bought that field, he wasn't really wanting to own the land. He was wanting to be faithful to the promise that God had given him. You remember in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about the fact that Abraham was looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And he trusted God's promise. And one day, Israel did get the land. And then they lost it because they put more value in the land than they did in the God of the land. And that's where I want to draw my conclusions tonight, today. And I want you to think with me for just a couple of minutes. God has made promises to us as His people, His children today in the 21st century as a church of Jesus Christ. He has made promises to us as individuals and as His people. And He wants us to believe those promises and trust those promises. But my question is, how much do we pattern the way we make the choices in our lives around the promises of God? How much do we invest trusting that those promises are real and are true? We've been promised that this life that we live here on this earth is nothing more than a preparation and a precursor for the life that is to come. Do we believe that? Absolutely. So how much do we invest in that life? instead of this one. I have two boys, one getting ready to graduate from high school, and another one in a couple more years will be following behind him. How much time and energy do I put into their athletics, their music, their academics, all of which are good things? But do I spend as much time investing in those boys with my time and my energy toward their future life as I do for their present life? If not, do I really trust God's promises or not? Because if I really believe and trust Him, I'm going to spend more time investing in their future life than I am in their present life. And it's not just about investing money or investing resources. It's about investing my heart, planting my heart. Abraham, when he buried Sarah there, planted his heart in that land in Canaan, knowing that he would never see the promise fulfilled, but knowing that one day it would be. And every time we go out to Kornheim's, or to Fabio's, or to Braun's, out to the cemetery. Every time we take one of our loved ones in Christ and we place them in the ground, we are speaking of hope that we have for the future. We are bound by hope. We are chained by hope. It binds everything that we do and every decision that we make. And my question to us today is, are we investing in the faith that we have in what God has promised us. There is a great scene in the movie Facing the Giants, one of my all-time favorite scenes. Matter of fact, the pastor of Sherwood Baptist Church wrote an entire book based on the scene that you're about to see. There's a man by the name of Mr. Bridges 
in the movie. You remember Mr. Bridges, if you saw the movie, he would go every day and pray by every locker for the students at the school. One day he goes in to see the coach to explain to him that his work is not finished there as a coach. And, the, and Coach Taylor chases him out into the hallway and asks him if the Lord really gave him that word for him to say. And Coach Taylor admitted the fact that he wasn't sure if he really saw God working there. And I want you to listen to the story that Mr. Bridges tells him from the movie Facing the Giants. Listen just for a minute to this story and watch it. Grant, I heard a story about two farmers who desperately needed rain. And both of them prayed for rain. But only one of them went out and prepared his fields to receive it. Which one do you think trusted God to send the rain? Well, the one who prepared his fields for it. Which one are you? God will send the rain when he's ready. You need to prepare your field to receive it. Beloved, God has promised you that there will come a day when your life here will end, just like Sarah's did. That day will come. The question is, when it does, will your field be ready and prepared? God has made a promise to us as a church that if we will trust Him, He will bring rain. He will bless us. None of us know exactly what that blessing is going to look like, but we believe it. The question is, are we preparing for it? God has promised your family. He's promised us His parents and grandparents. He will bless our children, our grandchildren, if we will bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. How much are we investing in that promise? I don't know about you, but I'm ready to buy a field to show God that I believe that His promise is true. Even if I don't get to see it come to pass, I hope that you are too. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the beauty of your word. Thank you, Father, for this example that seems almost like a footnote until we recognize how powerful it was that Abraham, instead of taking his dead wife's body back home to her ancestors for burial, rather than finding a beautiful tree and burying her there, knowing he'll pass by there periodically to remember her, instead trusted your promise that one day that land would be theirs and bought a field and a cave and buried his wife. Father, you have promised us that there is a land that is waiting for us. There is an eternity out there on the other side of the doorway called death. And it is our responsibility to trust you enough to put our spiritual resources into that land that place, that country, so that when the time comes for us to pass from this life, we will be able to go into eternity knowing that now we can reap the rewards and the return on the investment that we made, not in this life, but in the life to come. Father, as we respond, as we think, as we 
ponder what we need to do now. I pray you will guide our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it.